Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. PHP is not something that we grow up learning about, but that's going to change because as scientists learn more about PHP, they're finding that it's in effectively almost everything alive. So you have these microorganisms that naturally eat either methane or CO2 as their food source. They make or have the ability to make this molecule called PHB. What's fascinating about PHB is it's made throughout nature, but when you purify it, it is a material that can be melted and melted and molded and turned into shapes. In other words, you have something that can be used as a proxy replacement for plastic because it can be melted and molded. Hey folks, there's a lot that we can learn from nature. Processes that happen in nature keep resources in flow. Byproducts are used and contribute to the health of the ecosystem, and there is no waste. Fallen leaves enrich the soil, photosynthesis produces oxygen for animals to breathe, and microorganisms decompose methane and carbon dioxide and produce PHP. Oh, not so familiar with that last example? Well, it's an important one to know about if you care about removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere or producing a sustainable replacement for plastics. Today, we're joined by an entrepreneur who for 20 years has been working to harness this natural process to combat climate change, Mark Harema, founder of New Light. We talk about how Mark got into the space, how New Light's technology works, its impact and business potential, insights to the broader carbon removal space, and much, much more. Lots to learn in this one. Enjoy. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jason. Good to be here. Where are you calling in from today? I am sitting at our facility in Huntington Beach, California. Fantastic. Well, I'm not too far away. I'll have to come visit sometime. would love to see what it actually looks like. But thank you for being here. I'm excited to learn about you, your company, and overall the market for carbon negative products. Let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background and what led you to found New Light. Well, it's kind of hard to talk about my background without talking about New Light because I've been doing it since I was, I guess, 21 years old. I started New Light when I was in college. And leading up to that, I would say in high school, I was pretty heavy into science. I was on the National Oceanographic Science Bowl team where they, <laughs> you sit in a panel of like four people and they ask you questions and you buzz in. The answer is like dinoflagellate or whatever it is. <laughs> so I've always loved science. In fact, I kind of overdosed on it in high school so much that when I got to college, I was studying politics was my major while also simultaneously taking like math and chemistry and physics. I got really sick my junior year 
couldn't figure it out for about a year. It was a pretty tough thing. So the summer between my junior and senior year, I started to do a bunch of research and had decided that I was going to do a post back and go to med school, but came across a newspaper article about carbon emissions and it fundamentally changed my trajectory. But that was what life looked like prior to New Light. Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. I noticed that the company is 20 years old and really that you were prescient and perhaps seeing the climate crisis coming long before many others. Is that what drove you to found New Lights? Was it really that interest in carbon emissions or a fascination with the technology? It's funny because I've heard that comment before about how we were prescient, but at the time we didn't feel like that because I always like referencing this movie. I think it was like 1994, 1995, The American President. Great movie. And there's this big climactic scene where they talk about how they're finally going to do something about climate change, which means that we had already gotten to a point where there was sort of a recognized frustration that it was known and we just weren't doing enough about it. So we were 10 years after that. What we noticed was that it didn't feel like it was going anywhere. In other words, there was discussion about voluntary reductions in emissions, taxing carbon, burying carbon. And for all the reasons we know and love, that was just, it wasn't going anywhere. There was too much disagreement. When we came across this newspaper article about methane emissions, and it was about methane emissions from cows, it started a chain of questions, which was effectively, is there another way to approach this problem? Something that maybe we can find consensus on. The idea was, well, what if we could use greenhouse gas as a resource to make useful products. Because if we could do that, then potentially we have a market-driven or consumer-driven pathway to reducing the amount of carbon in the air. And that was really our guiding light. And that was what inspired us because we felt that it was a pathway that was not being done, but also something that held a lot of potential. I mean, if you look at the things that have shaped human history, or certainly at least recent human history, those market forces are the ones that can move at such scale and such speed. And it seems like, and I still believe this, if we are going to solve climate change, and that is absolutely not a foregone conclusion, but if we are going to do that, there has to be some level of consumers and the market sort of running with it and doing it. It can't just be government-led. That was our inspiration then, and it remains so today. Well, I certainly agree with you. And I think millions of others working in climate in different ways through businesses would probably agree as well. Let's zoom in now and hear a bit more about New Light and the problem that it's aiming to solve. Give us a sense of what you're trying to do. Well, fundamentally, we are trying to reduce the amount of carbon in the air. The way that we're trying to do that is by using greenhouse gas as a raw material ingredient to make products. We are building out this thesis that if we can change supply chains such that they incorporate greenhouse gas into the physicality of what they are, then we can use those supply chains as a way to drive down the amount of carbon in the air. So as an example, let's say your t-shirt or your shoes or the furniture that you're sitting on was instead of being made from forever fossil fuels, they were made from carbon that would otherwise be in the air. So now all the things, the activities that you have, those same activities are reversing the flow of carbon rather than contributing to it. What we set out to do was to figure out how to turn that broad idea into actual technology and then actual products. So the first part of New Light's life was asking the question, what technologies enable this? And one of the early things that we found was that, well, actually nature is doing this sort of all day, every day. Nature is taking greenhouse gas 
In fact, you could argue that greenhouse gas is the fundamental building block of nature, right? When trees, they're growing from greenhouse gas. When coral reefs grow, they're growing from greenhouse gas. Inspired by that, we said, okay, let's find microorganisms that can not only consume greenhouse gas, but can also turn it into useful materials and useful products. So it took us about five years initially to find our first target microorganism that could do that. Mark, let's get a little bit more specific. Take us inside the kitchen and help us understand how the process actually works. The technology that we developed starts with a microorganism that consumes greenhouse gas. We've now developed microorganisms that can consume methane and microorganisms that can consume carbon dioxide. We have a preference for methane because it's so much more impactful to the environment. So let's talk about that for a moment. Throughout nature, there are microorganisms called methanotrophs. In other words, they eat methane. So in estuaries or soils or ocean, you're going to find methanotrophs that are consuming methane as their, as their food source. And those microorganisms are also making a material inside of their cells called PHB. Now, PHB is not something that we grow up learning about, but that's going to change because as scientists learn more about PHB, they're finding that it's in effectively almost everything alive. So you have these microorganisms that naturally eat either methane or CO2 as their food source. They make or have the ability to make this molecule called PHB. What's fascinating about PHB is it's made throughout nature, but when you purify it, it is a material that can be melted and melted and molded and turned into shapes. In other words, you have something that can be used as a proxy replacement for plastic because it can be melted and molded. But it has two really important features that is different than plastic. One is because it's made everywhere that there's life, life understands it, life knows how to break it down. So if it ends up in your home compost, as an example, the microorganisms in the soil, they're making it themselves as a food source. And so they'll eat it and consume it. And in fact, our studies and third party studies have showed that this molecule PHB will be consumed about the same pace as paper products. But the other thing, and maybe the most important thing, is that this material is made from greenhouse gas. Now, when it's made in nature, you have a net carbon negative process. We worked very hard to deliver the same thing. In other words, a material that when we make it, it's a net carbon negative material. We grow these microorganisms. We basically replicate what's happening in the ocean. So we have a saltwater solution. We have these natural microorganisms. We feed them greenhouse gas. They eat it turn it inside of their cells into PHB, then we purify that. And then that comes out as a fine white powder. And then we melt that into pellets. And then once we have pellets, we can use that to make various shapes and parts and pieces. But unlike plastic, now it has these really important features that I mentioned. Okay. So this is really exciting. A process that captures greenhouse gases and creates something that can be a replacement for plastic. In the end, you're creating pellets, as you said, and it's a product that you've named air carbon. Give us a sense of what air carbon actually is. What does it look like? What does it feel like? And what are you able to do with it? So air carbon is our trade name for greenhouse gas-based PHB. When you make it as a powder, it's this sort of fine white powder that kind of sticks to everything. When you pelletize, it just feels like normal pellets, nothing that would be overly remarkable. But you can melt it and mold it and shape it into parts and pieces. So we have developed over the years the ability to turn air carbon into a wide range of things. So either by itself or in conjunction with other polymers, we've done everything from straws that degrade as fast or faster than paper 
but they don't get soggy. So you have this really important middle ground of a highly useful material from a consumer perspective, but great from an environmental perspective. Cutlery, we've done coatings for paper products. One of the things that a lot of people don't yet realize is that when you have a quote unquote paper cup, it's about 5% plastic by weight. It's coated with plastic. That makes it almost impossible to either recycle or compost. But if you coat that with something like air carbon, now you have something that is actually truly fully home compostable in a way that traditional plastic cups are not. So we've done coatings. We've started to get much more into fibers. We've developed things in the furniture industry, in the electronics industry, fashion industry. What we're really trying to do is use air carbon to help decarbonize all these different places in the traditional plastics industry but replace them with this new, very old from a nature perspective, but for society, a relatively new molecule. Very, very cool. Help us understand the business model. Is your revenue simply dependent on selling air carbon as a product, or are you able to monetize actually the capture of greenhouse gases as a service or through credits? When we set out to build New Light, one of our kind of core principles was we didn't want to create something that would rely on pricing for carbon. It was never really a core part of our business model. Even today, our revenues come from the products that we make, whether selling the material or products that we make from the material. With that said, the industry has shifted quite a bit over the past 20 years where carbon credit pricing has become much more, I'd say, stable. Well, maybe stable is not the best word, but at least the the industry itself has very much come into its own in a way where it was very nascent early on. So we have started to explore that space and started to play there. And we are seeing some interesting monetization potential. But at the end of the day, we still believe that the core of the business needs to be something that is driven by the technology, the conversion process. We'll see how that plays out over time. It is There are certain situations where actually carbon pricing can be very important. Like if we're looking at sites where we're trying to remove emissions and that pricing can be critical to enable that. So we'll see how that plays out. But certainly right now, the lion's share is our products. So how's it going? How are your products and partnerships? And what can you tell us about sales and overall growth? I think running any company, there's beautiful days and there's challenging days. But overall, I get a thrill out of the fact that 20 years ago, this was an idea. And we went from a couple of kids in dorm rooms to laboratory and pilot and now full commercial scale, going to a Shake Shack and sitting down and seeing our straws throughout the room there. It's kind of like when you maybe, I don't know if you're a musician, like you hear your song on the radio for the first time. It's very cool to still to see greenhouse gas-based products on the market. So today we're in over 5,000 locations. We've delivered over 100 million units into the market. We are expanding our production capacity. We just completed a capital raise that will allow us to build both expand at our commercial operation, but also grow at a new site in Ohio. And and we're also looking at other sites in Canada and North Dakota and other places. So I think it's going great. It's really exciting in no small part because we believe so deeply in the thesis that's driving this, which is really a consumer-driven, market-driven pathway to reduce the amount of carbon in the air. Mark, that's really impressive growth. And I'm aware there might be other opportunities you're facing as well. I saw that one of the other byproducts of air carbon is protein. Is that something that you can take advantage of? It seems like that's a useful material and perhaps opens up another opportunity for the business. We think so. So when you grow these microorganisms, you separate 
the rest of their body from the polymer. Someone asked me, so the material you make is it's a microorganism. I said, well, well, I guess it's the polymer. But in reality, the polymer is like the arm. So it's just as much the micro. So in some ways, air carbon is, you could call it a microorganism or the polymer or the microorganism. But either way, when you separate the non-polymer material, you have a single cell protein. And that material is something that we think could be useful. If you imagine a significant reduction in, in land requirements, in all the sort of health features, not to mention just overall economics for the platform that we have, one of our visions is to find a way to use that protein as a feed for things like chicken or fish or, or whatever the case may be. We think that there's some interesting potential there and we're working on developing that. So I think that'll be one of the things about our platform that is going to be fascinating to grow and watch over the next few years. Mark, that's impressive growth. I'm really curious from an impact perspective, you set out with a mission to reduce carbon in the atmosphere. What's your vision? How much of an impact can New Light have in removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere? Well, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, we have very big ambitions in terms of what we want our impact to be. But let's just kind of look at it holistically for a second. The plastics market is coming up on about a trillion pounds per year. The average carbon emissions from a pound of plastic is on the order of roughly three pounds, weight per weight, right? So if it's a pound of plastic, you most likely emitted about three times that much in CO2E. But to make the math easy, let's just say it's to do some tonnage equivalents. Let's say it's 2.2. So if a trillion pound industry is emitting about 2.2 trillion pounds of carbon, that's about a billion tons of CO2E. So it's a sizable contribution to the overall carbon footprint of humanity. If you could take that material and instead of having it be a net emitter, let's say you could reduce that where half of it now is reduced by virtue of capturing greenhouse gas, you've had a pretty big impact. If you start to look at using the plastics flow, this massive flow, if you could use that as a tool to capture carbon and then put it into recycling systems, but have that be a conveyor belt for how humanity is driving down carbon. That's the vision. So what level of impact we get to, obviously we don't know yet, but our ambition is, is quite large. We want to help decarbonize as many industries as we can. And I think now that we have commercial operations and we're adding to those operations, we're on a really interesting trajectory and we want to help enable companies that want to decarbonize their products and we're seeing traction. Mark, carbon negative products like air carbon are a relatively new thing and it's still somewhat of a mystery what the different applications of captured carbon might be. It's also a mystery what kind of market and demand there is for these new products. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this emerging market and what signs do you see of its potential? Well, there's some interesting signs out there. If you look at the number of companies that have signed up for net zero targets, whether that's a pledge or an initiative or whatever it is, but there's a tracker out there that you can follow and you can see how many companies are signing up to these net zero targets, whether it's in 2030, 2040, or 2050. The number has been growing very, very sizably. I don't know exactly where the current data stands, but you're probably somewhere towards like half of all Fortune 500 companies have a pledge around net zero. So that's just an enormous amount of demand for decarbonization. That's a trend that has been continuing. When you see various other regulations around carbon accounting, these are all things that are pointing to a globe that is trying to find ways to reduce the amount of carbon that is involved with its activities. So as a 
tool to try to help enable that, to try to help advance that, we think that air carbon kind of fits very nicely in that drive. So I think that's how we look at the kind of core of our demand. When you look at the plastic side, it's quite similar. We have this enormous problem and the pathways that we've been on just have not been working. Just in the same way that climate has not really advanced at the speed scale that we need, the same thing is true in plastics in terms of the pollution that we have. So we have to look at new pathways and we have to find new systems and find ways that kind of harness that win-win middle ground. A lot of us are tired of the finger pointing. Let's find the things we agree on so that we can scale those and get some stuff done. Mark, you're part of the carbon capture industry that's gained a lot of recent attention and more recognition and acceptance recently. And when you look at it from a market perspective, the projections I've seen say that it's now at about a $3.5 billion industry expected to reach about $15 billion by 2030. From your perspective, having been in this space for so long, what do you think are some of the key challenges in the space that need to be solved to achieve that sort of growth? It always comes down to the economics. You have to deliver win-win solutions to the market. It's kind of similar to what we are just talking about. It's not just win-win consensus on the political side, but also from a business-to-business perspective. What I've seen over the years is that the vast majority of companies out there actually want to have more sustainable products. I think sometimes the public doesn't fully give these companies credit for that, and there's almost an assumption that they'll do sort of whatever it takes to meet the bottom line. And that's not totally untrue. But what I have seen is that a lot of companies actually want to do far more good than you might otherwise imagine. But what holds them back is the availability of materials. So you have these interesting ideas, but they're at such a small scale that companies can't really run with them or they can't rely on them. Then you have sort of the economic side of things. Can you find that nexus of, yes, we see a lot of value here as small scale materials or products or whatever it is that there's often price premiums that have to be associated. So those have been the primary challenges, I think, in the carbon capture industry is the technologies have to grow to a certain size and scale where they can really hit that sweet spot of reliability of supply, sufficiency of supply. The performance is a table stake. You got to have that. And then the pricing so that people can really grow with this stuff. So we'll get there as an industry, but it's going to take time. It's going to take perseverance. And most importantly, it's going to take a lot of ideas. Nothing would make me happier than to see a flood of graduates going into the carbon capture space as different points in time, people have gone into investment banking or computer programming or artificial intelligence, the conversion of greenhouse gas into useful products or otherwise ways to decarbonize society. It's an urgent need. There's a ton of potential and it would be amazing to see more brain power going into that space. Well, I think anyone close to the space would say that that flood of talent and brain power you're hoping for is absolutely happening. It's not just for carbon capture, but climate tech and many other climate-related careers are very clearly compelling, not only for young people, but also for many established professionals looking to contribute to the biggest challenge and really opportunity of our time. Mark, what about the regulatory environment as well as public investments? Have there been public programs that are supporting the acceleration of the space? We really haven't seen a ton of public programs supporting us for most of the 20 years that we've been doing this, which might surprise some people. And frankly, it surprised me. We're aware of the spaces that do seem to get support, but the conversion of greenhouse gas into materials has generally not really been one of those, in part because it's so new and not well known. I will say, though, that we're starting to see that shift. We are seeing interest 
at the public level, both within states in the United States. We think there's some really interesting opportunities in the IRA bill that was passed. And we're also seeing it internationally. We recently announced a project that we're working on with Manitoba in Canada to build a production facility up there. So we are starting to see an uptick. And I think that's partially also a function of where we are as a business, having grown through the cycles that we've been through and where we are stage-wise sort of now enables that sort of public financing if that's there. So we'll see, but I think we do see more of an uptick now than we've seen in years past. Mark, what's next for New Light? What are some of the key challenges that you're working on and what do you need to do to succeed in scaling the company? I think one of the biggest questions that we have is how do we grow faster? Building new production plants is a heavy endeavor. In other words, it's not like software where you can just sort of plug in something and grow very, very quickly based on demand. When you build a new plant, it's a two to three year endeavor that requires everything from engineering, site selection, order procurement, construction, optimization. These are just long, long cycles. So great. Then you have your next plant in. So we have a pathway that we've put out to build more and more facilities. But one of the things that we struggle with is even if we're successful in that pathway, we've really only barely touched the overall problems that we're trying to address. So one of the central questions that we have within the company is how do we grow faster than just our own sort of internal organic growth? And ultimately, we think that's going to have to involve some level of partnership with others throughout the world. And we're still optimizing that to see what that looks like. But our vision would be to see plants dotting the landscape. Really, in some ways, what we've seen with solar and wind sort of as an analog there, where you get to a point where it just makes more sense to build an air carbon plant as opposed to a traditional plastics plant or other pathways of carbon capture, which are otherwise based on taxation or varying, where these are built more around material conversion. So that's the vision that we're working towards. We're still developing how we can accelerate that and enable that. But it's really a question of how do we grow faster to try to solve the challenges that we're looking at. Mark, you were speaking about your wish or hope that more interesting talent enters the space. You've been at it a while. I'm sure you're seeing peripheral opportunities. What else do you hope researchers and entrepreneurs explore in carbon capture and in carbon negative products? I should first say that I would love to see more people coming into the space. There are already a number of just incredible people. I mean, I feel so blessed with the team that we have here at New Light. Just truly, truly incredible people that have dedicated their lives to the mission that we're on and just the late nights and efforts that you see, the creativity, and it's just remarkable. And that's just our journey. So I'm assuming it's something that's happening throughout the industry. But I would love to see more and more people just drawn to the space because it has so much opportunity. And in terms of what those opportunities are, I mean, sky's the limit. I mean, that's really true. We are at the very beginning of solving this problem. I mean, I know we've been talking about it for a long time, but in terms of the actual impact, we have a long, most of our journey is ahead of us and we need to do it quickly. That represents both an incredible challenge, but also a major opportunity. What it means is that new technologies can be developed, new pathways, new efficiencies, new business models. There's not necessarily one specific technology or space that I think about putting my finger on. But what I do know is I've just seen so much open space in the decarbonization world. And once you start 
poking around and looking at it, you'll quickly find that. So I would encourage anybody who's kind of thinking about where they want to go next career-wise to consider this opportunity, this challenge, because it is one of humanity's most important challenges today. And I think it's something that we can't ignore. And there's a certain satisfaction, I think, that comes with being a part of trying. Like I said earlier, I am both optimistic and pessimistic. If you look at the data, you should be pessimistic. But if you look at the things that are popping up, some of the companies, some of the technologies, I think there is reason to hope. Now, what we have to do is drive that. (laughs) We've got to work really hard and bring everything we've got to the problem so that we can start to tilt the scale from pessimistic to optimistic. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing now, how you're contributing to this effort, and thanks for your time today. Best of luck with everything. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.